Hi, everyone. Welcome back to my podcast, Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Sullivan, and I am coming to you from the suburbs of Philadelphia, where I've been teaching anatomy and physiology at Bucks County Community College since 2002. Today, we're going to continue on with uh, our second-to-last episode on the brain. Specifically, we're covering the cerebrum. I know it seems like we've spent a lot of time on the brain, but it absolutely deserves that attention, don't you think? Before I get on to anything else, I just want to say that um, I appreciate all the emails I get. Like, I get a lot of emails from people, and uh, they're asking me to cover certain things, but um, again, I am covering this in the order that a typical two-semester anatomy and physiology textbook would go. But I also get a lot of questions asking me about some of the personal things I might mention on the podcast, especially my cat. So I get new listeners all the time because this is the kind of podcast that really isn't uh, current events necessary or, or reliant because uh, this is I, there's new students taking A&P all the time. And, and anytime a new student takes A&P, they can start with episode one and just move forward in the order they're taking the course. So um, because new people enroll in A&P all the time, I get new listeners all the time, which is fantastic. And I super appreciate all the support you guys are giving me. But even though some of these episodes are four years old, for those listeners, they're new. And so that means people are still asking me about my cat. And uh, you might remember in an episode I recorded in 2020, I mentioned my cat, who at the time was almost 16 years old, and he had to have his thyroid radiated due to hyperthyroidism. And a lot of people are asking me how my cat's doing. Well, the good news is the radiation worked great, and he was very healthy for a couple of years. Then, in 2022, he was diagnosed with diabetes and required insulin injections twice a day. And that kept him going until June of 2023, when his body finally gave out on him. And he was about one month from making it to 19 years old when he passed. He had an amazing run. He was a loving, lovable, and very loved cat. And I appreciate everyone's concern. Thank you so much for that. And having said that, we have a special treat today. Not only are we continuing on with the brain, but I recently spoke with Dr. B. Heaney Stemple, who is a professor of anatomy and physiology at my college, Bucks County Community College. She recently completed her doctorate and conducted her research on teaching students with post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Now, I've known Dr. Heaney Stemple for at least 15 years now. She's an excellent professor, a super smart person, and a kind soul. She came to A&P from a clinical background, so I can relate to that. So let's listen to my extremely interesting conversation with Dr. B. Heaney Stemple. All right, so Dr. B. Heaney Stemple, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So as people already learned in like my intro, you and I are colleagues. We both teach at Bucks County Community College, and we've both been here for quite some time now. And um, so, so tell me, just to get us started, um, how long have you been at Bucks, and what, what would you say is your favorite thing about teaching anatomy and physiology? 
Okay. So I've been at Bucks County Community College for 21 years now. I can't believe it. Time flies. And you and I basically have been um, at Bucks for about the same time period, teaching anatomy and physiology side by side. Uh, the best thing about teaching anatomy and physiology is gaining the interest of students of how it can relate to their everyday world versus just reading facts and knowledge from the book and not just seeing it in a 2D world, but it is all around you every single day in a 3D, 4D world. Yeah, I love that that answer because I often think of that myself as like there's no one in our in our classes for whom this isn't relevant, right? Everyone, uh, everyone, every one of my students I've ever had has had a human body. So human A and P is very relevant to them, uh, even if even if they're not a preclinical student. Yeah. Yes, and, and applying it to all the diseases or disorders that they either have had or friends and family have had and providing them the basis to understand it better so they can understand their relationship better with others that have that disease or disorder also is is something very important to me. Yeah, I agree. And I think that we share that because we both have clinical backgrounds and uh, not everyone who teaches A&P does. And, Absolutely. Yeah, and that kind of brings that in. So, so tell me real quick, since I mentioned that, what is your clinical background? So my clinical background is I'm a physician assistant and I have been a physician assistant basically as long as uh, the teaching aspect, but I fell in love with teaching the more I explained things to my patients, I volunteered, and it just grew from there. So um, the other clinical uh, or medical background is that I've really focused in on um, certain mental health disorders that can affect learning through studying or learning in terms of retaining and absorbing the information. So one of those uh, and that you have asked me about to come is post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's also stress and anxiety in general as well. Yeah, I mean, huge obstacles to learning, I would, I would think. Um, I mean, we see it all the time. There is no level of student that doesn't experience some kind of um, you know, mental health event, like it's at some point. So, so that's, I'm glad that you, you already, you know, kind of started to slide into that because that was my big question for you, because I, I know I've known you for a long time and I knew what your, your research was on for your dissertation. And it really sparked my interest for the, to share with, with the listeners, because especially this episode cover is about the cerebrum. So we're in the brain series of episodes right now. So, um, so, um, before I get into that, just real quick, a lot of the people who are listening, a lot of our students want to be PAs. So I think that's awesome um, that they have someone like you that they can talk to because that's such a good field for students to get into. I mean, I know when I go to my, my, my doctor, I always ask to see the PA. Like I prefer the PA to well, the GPs. To and so, so, um, so I'm, um, that's, uh, that's great. Uh, so, but for the interest of time, Tell me about the research you've done on stress and PTSD and things like that and how it affects teaching and learning, because I find that enormously interesting from an, as an educator. Mm -hmm. um, in short, and then we can expand upon anything that you want to talk about. Um, I, as a physician assistant, I am aware that um, ex especially extreme levels of stress 
like post-traumatic stress disorder, it affects the prefrontal cortex, it affects the hippocampus, and it affects the amygdala. And it's really how one has an emotional bond to a memory and how that order is formed. And then in addition, it affects the ability to plan, to learn, organize new data, anterior grade more so than retrograde. Um, So it affects incoming data. And so when a student is approaching a new course like anatomy and physiology that has already an increased level of stress, that can be triggered just by the stress level. And then depending on the topics, it can be triggered even more. So um, how one approaches teaching a student that has an extreme level of stress, or in this case, as my dissertation, post-traumatic stress disorder, it really is about lessening the anxiety of the unknown. So the stress and anxiety of the class is not going to affect the student as much. And so their learning increases. So as we decrease levels of anxiety and emotional responses, the ability to learn and memorize and make connections properly or cognitive uh, connections properly and time management to do so increases. Oh, that's amazing. So what do we do? Like, how do we do that? How do we lower their stress levels in the classroom? And the biggest aspect from my research was that faculty members are increasingly embedding inclusive teaching practices into their methods, which is great. So a lot of faculty are already doing a lot of these methods, but the biggest take home is an intense amount of communication. So sometimes uh, faculty members might not think that they're doing enough, but actually they might be doing just enough and could do a little bit more. So I always say it's important to introduce yourself before the class starts, navigate for that student an introduction of what that class might look like, like an everyday class, where that classroom is, what the classroom looks like, and also how to lay out a regular pattern of what you're doing in the class. So nothing's new, nothing's shocking to the uh, student. And then that way, that level of anxiety goes down and they trust that you're creating a learning environment that is safe and comfortable to them. And then eventually that bond with you and the student trusting will increase and you'll be able to tailor more and more aspects to increase learning. I love that idea. I love the idea of of no surprises, right? So, so preparing students by making sure that they know what to expect and that you're not just throwing things at them from all over the place. I, I often tell my students, because this is a hard one, sometimes you'll see a student um, and they're taking an exam and they get a couple of questions in a row that they don't really know, and that throws off the whole test for them because they get so stressed out by the fact that they didn't know those that now they're, now they're psyching themselves out for the rest of the test because they're, they they've got this doom and gloom and um, and then things they probably could have answered correctly. Otherwise they've now completely blown because of that. And I wonder like how that's related. Well, it's the power of that unknown. It's the power of 
um, the question having its own uniqueness that the student doesn't speak that language. So sometimes just if the language is not what they're used to seeing, so if a if a professor um, teaches the class in a less scientific vernacular and then asks the question in a very scientific language like the textbook, that throws off the student because they're even though they've read it, they're not prepared for that language that's coming. Even though that might be what's on, for example, a nursing board question or a physician assistant question, board question. Um, one tip that I provide um, to my students personally that I've found has worked and um, in the dissertation, some other uh, faculty members have discussed is taking the power out of the question and allowing the student to create their own wording, which will give them back that power and lessen the anxiety. So look for the nouns and verbs, identify what you did study, and then let's see what that association is with the answers. So most of the time the student has studied that information, they just don't like how it's worded in their brain. I like that, I like that. Um, so could you touch on the, um, the, the people for whom the class itself isn't the only source of stress, right? So I know that you had talked about post-traumatic stress disorder uh, in your in your research, and I think that we probably have a lot of students that we don't even realize are dealing with that. I know I get a lot of um, a lot of veterans in my class, and so um, so I know that veterans tend to have a higher um, uh, incidence of PTSD because of their experiences. So I'm wondering if you could touch on that a little bit. So post traumatic stress disorder actually and veterans um, is still a very large population that we see in an everyday scenario but also in the academic world but post-traumatic stress disorder is a traumatic event that has occurred to someone or that they are a close witness to and this could be an acute or chronic scenario so the other populations that we have to think about are students that have had physical a mental uh, excuse me, physical, mental, emotional, sexual abuse, or partner domesticated uh, abuse. So this is a large population that we might see as well. Other uh, stressful aspects that can be chronic and that can have been proven to form post-traumatic stress disorders is the minority population. So the minority population is vast. It could be race, ethnicity, it could be religion, culture, it could be uh, uh, gender identity. It could be LGBTQI, uh, B. And so it could be, an, or lower socioeconomic class. So it could be any of these chronic um, traumas that a, a person can have. Anyway, these PTSD aspects can then affect one's learning, one's memory, one's emotional response. So your question originally was asking about PTSD, but uh, what did you want me to focus specifically on with that? I'm sorry, I, can you repeat the I, question? I think that, that basically um, how it affects teaching and learning. Okay. Right, so, so 
Go ahead. So it affects learning uh, for the student mostly by planning. So that prefrontal cortex really is the idea of laying out a good plan, a good time management, and good study skill strategy. It's about uh, memory consolidation as well. So um, memory consolidation, working with the hippocampus, for example, in consolidating how things should be connected co cognitively, how things should be applied. So the difference of just memorizing something versus applying it or making a connection to previous or future information is affected. Um, the other aspect is having a emotional response to something that stresses that individual out. So if they are stressed by the overwhelming nature of the material in AMP, if they're stressed about not doing well, this is going to create this emotional response as well. So learning, memory, time management or planning, and basically regulating that emotional response to what is occurring. That's how this can affect the student's learning. In addition, lack of sleep, not eating correctly, all of these will also affect a student's ability of life outside, affecting the life inside the academic space. And it's very yeah. hard to separate those. Yeah, right. And as as instructors, as professors, as teachers, I mean, that's just something that we we need to be cognizant of in our student population so that we're trying to make sure that our students are getting what they need from us. And man, what a challenge that is, right? Because we don't all have those kinds of expertise when we come into and, this. And it's, it is patience. It's patience of not taking a reaction personally as a professor, as an instructor, and taking a moment to pause to think about why a person is reacting a certain way. So what could create that reaction that I'm not seeing and always giving that student the um, the the ability to express themselves of maybe why that is occurring, maybe what you don't know. And that gets back to creating a safe learning environment, a constant um, communication. And it's not just before class starts, but it's also throughout the semester. And that builds up your bond with the student. And that student will share more and more of how that event has shaped what they are able and not able to do. Yeah, that's fantastic. That research is so interesting and thank you so much for doing it because Thanks. it's, it's. I mean, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. It's just that, you know, we've been teaching this class for so long and, um, and we, know, we know who our students are and we know who we're gonna see and we just wanna do the very best we can to serve them. And um, how much we need to know is 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 vastly beyond the content of anatomy and physiology. Yes, and just to give you um, some numbers uh, that I think the viewers will really find um, fascinating is that eighty nine, about eighty nine ninety percent of us have had a traumatic event or witnessed a traumatic event. So it's not that we're all immune to this. We have all yeah. been exposed, but it's how your brain um, cognitively makes that memory connection to the emotion and how it consolidates and whether 
that person is going to have more of a fight or flight response than someone else and why we're not quite sure, but this is some of the aspects. And 67% of college students have had at least one traumatic event um, by the time they graduated. So it's, it's very interesting. Um, community college students have a little bit of a higher percentage. So um, actually having PTSD, 6% of college students have PTSD, community college students have 9%. Oh, wow. So that's, that's a significant difference. Correct. Yeah. And, and most college students in the country, I believe, are in community college. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a large population. So uh, coming up with ways that we can help our students, um, I did develop the, a five-step teaching plan, and it basically is getting to know the students and creating a safe learning environment. It's to sustaining that communication and being constant in your support, your encouragement, and um, your ability to look out to prevent crises. And three, be flexible and accommodate. Provide accommodations that you can. Four, know your institutional services. And Steve, this is what really shocked me in my findings um, is that faculty members did not know what services the colleges provided. And, and I did interviews in, in multiple community colleges. They didn't have on the ready um, phone numbers or contact individuals or emails. Uh, they didn't know where the offices were. And that, I think, is going above and beyond your job description and something that we have to be prepared for in the future. And the fifth was obtaining professional development on PTSD. Yeah, that is a great um, thing to share, that having those five steps that we can share. And maybe if you're okay with it, maybe I will just like type that out in the show notes so that people can reference that. And, um, and if there's any um, if there's any links to any information or something like that, that that you have that I can share with people who are interested in learning more, then uh, maybe we can we can also put that in there as well. That would be great. Yep. All right. Well, B, it was great to talk to you. I don't want to take up the rest of your afternoon. Um, you've been a, an amazing colleague and you're so looked up to here at the college and everyone knows you are a super professor and uh, and we're so lucky to have you at Bucks. So well, thank, thank you. you so much. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I, I, this was this was a, a wealth of information for students and instructors who are listening. Great, thank you. Thanks, B. I'll talk to you soon. All right, bye bye. I can't think of someone I enjoy working with more than B. Students are really lucky to have her as their professor. And Bucks County Community College is incredibly lucky to have her on its faculty. Thanks for joining us for that conversation. And thank you, Dr. Heaney Stemple, for allowing me to record that conversation for your benefit. Now let's get on to the Cerebrum. In terms of mass, the adult brain is the vast majority of the central nervous system. It averages about three to three and a half pounds uh, per person. And that's about 1,500 grams, give or take maybe 100 or so. Uh, the brain's density is about the same as the cerebrospinal fluid. So it kind of floats suspended in the CSF 
inside the meninges and the cranial cavity of the skull without putting too much strain on the arachnoid trabeculae that, that it's hanging from uh, inside your skull. So if you think about how much less a person seems to weigh in water, that's kind of similar to the effect that CSF has, the, has on the brain. It doesn't hang from the inside of the skull. It floats inside the CSF. The brain has four main regions. Uh, and if we start with the most superior, they're the cerebrum, the diencephalon, the brainstem, and the cerebellum. Now, some people you talk to are going to include the diencephalon as part of the brainstem. Uh, that's fine. I've seen it both ways, equal number of times. Uh, so you might see brainstem including the diencephalon. Either way, that's, that's fine. So when you think about brainstem, you might actually hear people say there's three parts, or you might hear people say there's four parts. So either way, I think you're not really wrong. When we use directional terms to describe the brain, we don't use the typical terms we're used to. We don't use anterior for the front of the brain. We say rostral, which means toward the nose. And instead of posterior, we use caudal, which means toward the tail. Now, I know that that's not typical in a human because the back of your brain is not really toward your tailbone. But if you think about a four-legged mammal who's standing on all fours, the back of their brain actually is kind of toward their tail. I know it sounds kind of easy to think about the brain by assigning a specific function to a specific anatomical structure, but it's so much more complicated than that. The, the most of the brain's functions are collaborative efforts by multiple regions with overlapping duties and responsibilities. So, not too many individual parts of the brain are responsible for one thing, and that's the only part of your brain that's responsible for that thing. We have to think of our nervous system as a collaborative effort that many, many structures are contributing to with overlapping responsibilities. However, from a teaching perspective, we do kind of want to simplify it as much as we can without being inaccurate because then it becomes easiest to understand. So we will try to assign some of the major responsibilities to the structures of the brain that are contributing the biggest part of that. And that's typically what you'll see um, when you're reading about it or looking through a textbook. All right, so I want to focus on the cerebrum, which is the most superior and largest part of the brain. So from an evolutionary perspective, it's the newest part of the brain. So our cerebrum is far more developed than any other animal's cerebrum. And that you can tell because of the functions of the cerebrum. A lot of it is, is about our capacity for complex thought, our intelligence, our reasoning, our memory, our judgment, all of those things we kind of think of as human qualities and human characteristics. So think about the cerebrum as something that's big and new for us. Many of the sensations we experience are perceived by the cerebrum so we can make sense of them. We can react to them, we can store them as memories, and the nerve signals that stimulate our voluntary skeletal muscle contractions originate in the cerebrum. So voluntary skeletal muscles, you're thinking these are the things that you're choosing to do, right? You're cognitively aware and deciding to move a muscle, to get up and walk around the room, for example. That's a cerebral activity that originates in the cerebrum. 
and our perception of the sensations that we experience. Like what a smell reminds us of, uh, what, what we perceive as beauty. Um, those things are also heading to the cerebrum so that we can compare them to previous memories. Think about a smell. Like if you smell chocolate chip cookies, you're like, ooh, smells like chocolate chip cookies. Well, the reason why you can do that is because you've smelled chocolate chip cookies before and you've stored that memory in your cerebrum. And when you smell them again, you're accessing that memory and comparing it so that you can identify the scent. That is something that the cerebrum is required to do. The most superficial part of the cerebrum, the outer shell, is called the neocortex, and it's comprised of gray matter. It is thin. It is the cell bodies and dendrites and axon terminals of neurons. It is called the neocortex because cortex means outer shell and neo means new. And from an evolutionary perspective, this is the newest part of our brain. It is the wrinkly part. So it's the mass of wrinkles that increases the cerebrum's surface area so that we can maximize our capacity for neurons. Each of those wrinkles is called a gyrus, and the space between two gyri is called a sulcus, the plural being sulci. If we move even deeper into the cerebrum, we'll find more gray matter, bilateral, called the cerebral nuclei. Now, you may have heard these called the basal nuclei, or even the basal ganglia, right? That terminology is kind of changing. Ganglia is really kind of wrong because a ganglion is a collection of neurosomas or neuron cell bodies and dendrites in the peripheral nervous system, not in the central nervous system. So calling something in the brain a ganglion is incorrect. In the central nervous system, we call the cell bodies and dendrites of neurons nuclei. So we're going to call these the basal nuclei or even better, the cerebral nuclei. Now, since neurosomas, cell bodies and dendrites, and the axon terminals are never myelinated, those areas of the brain and spinal cord are always going to be gray matter. So the cerebral nuclei are gray matter in the deepest part of the cerebrum. So let's talk about some of these cerebral nuclei. The caudate nucleus is a small round mass uh, when you look at it in a coronal section. However, it's actually pretty large and shaped like the letter C. So, and it functions to coordinate the pattern and rhythm of upper and lower limb movements associated with walking. So sometimes you'll look at a coronal section and you'll see two caudate nuclei, but it's really the same one, but since it's shaped like the letter C, depending on how you cut it, you might actually see two little pieces of it one up and one down. Then we have the globus pallidus and the putamen, and they're two adjacent groups of neurosomas, neuron cell bodies, that together form the shape of a triangle. They're found between the insula of the cerebral neocortex and the thalamus of the diencephalon. The globus pallidus works with the thalamus by stimulating and inhibiting its activity, which helps regulate the intrinsic contractions of skeletal muscles that give them their muscle tone, so think about your muscles and how even if you're not contracting your muscles, your muscles still 
feel kind of tight. Like you're, you're, they're still doing some contracting to hold their tone. That's muscle tone, and that is regulated by these structures, right? So the globus pallidus is going to inhibit the intrinsic contractions of skeletal muscles, what they do on their own, so that they're not over-contracting, and to make sure that the contractions of the muscles on one side of your body, let's say your limb, let's say it's your forearm muscles, the contractions on the anterior forearm muscles are equal to the contractions on the posterior forearm muscles. That way, you're not shaking or having tremors, right? So we want to balance those contractions to make sure that your, your muscles are only really doing what your cerebrum is asking them to do. The putamen helps control the movement of skeletal muscles subconsciously, meaning without you having to be aware it's happening. Together, the globus pallidus and the putamen are collectively known as the lentiform nucleus. Now, there's a band of white matter between the lentiform nucleus and the thalamus and caudate nucleus, and that is called the internal capsule. Now, we can collectively call the lentiform nucleus and the caudate nucleus as the corpus striatum, which literally means striped body. So remember, lentiform nucleus is the combination of the putamen and globus pallidus. And then corpus striatum is the combination of those two plus the caudate nucleus. And there's a thin line of gray matter between the insula and the lentiform nucleus called the claustrum. And that functions to subconsciously process visual information. Right? So when you see something and we don't really necessarily perceive it as an image, but you subconsciously are processing that visual information. So maybe you can navigate your way around a room without bumping into things, even if you're not necessarily taking note of every single thing in the room. Then the amygdala, which is found inferior to the putamen, contributes to our moods. It controls our behavior and the expression of our emotions. So the amygdala is kind of an important thing that makes us who we are. Like, think about, think about someone and their mood, how well they control their behavior and their expression of their emotions, and that's kind of their personality, right? So that has a lot to do with their personality, and that's controlled by the amygdala. Sticking with the cerebrum, I think we should talk about the lobes of the cerebrum because the cerebrum is divided into two large bilateral hemispheres. Each hemisphere is further divided into five lobes, and they all have their own set of functions with some overlap. So let's talk about the lobes of the cerebrum. So we've got this long, deep space between the left and right cerebral hemispheres. So each half we call a hemisphere. And that long, deep space is called the longitudinal fissure. It runs right along the mid-sagittal plane. And each of those hemispheres has five lobes that tend to align with the cranial bones. So the most rostral lobes are called the frontal lobes. These are the ones closest to your forehead. Caudal to those are the parietal lobes. Lateral to the parietal lobes are the temporal lobes out near your ears. And the most caudal lobes are the occipital lobes. Now, if we pull slightly the temporal lobe out of the way we can see the insular lobe, or insula. So that's our five lobes. 
The hemispheres don't typically align side by side. They actually have some differences in function left and right. So the left hemisphere doesn't do the same thing as the right hemispheres. And that difference is called cerebral lateralization. And it develops early in childhood. That's when we determine which hemisphere is going to do what. One hemisphere is actually shifted a little more rostral than the other. In most right-handed people, it's the right hemisphere that does that, but for left-handed people, it's the left. The piece of the hemisphere that sticks out on either end is called the petalia. So we have a frontal petalia and an occipital petalia. So that's the part that sticks out a little bit. So if the left hemisphere is shifted more rostrally, then the left hemisphere will have the frontal petalia, and the right hemisphere will have the occipital petalia, and vice versa. Each of the lobes of the cerebrum are separated from one another by specific sulci. That means between the frontal and parietal lobes, we have the central sulcus. The lateral sulcus separates the temporal lobe from the frontal and the parietal lobes. And the parieto-occipital sulcus separates the parietal lobes from the occipital lobes. There are a couple of specific very significant gyri that I want to mention, uh, and they're surrounding the central sulcus. So the gyrus immediately rostral to the central sulcus, meaning this is the last gyrus of the frontal lobe, if you're moving caudally, is called the precentral gyrus, meaning it's before the central sulcus if you're moving in that direction. And the one on the other side, caudal to the central sulcus, is the postcentral gyrus, meaning after the central sulcus. The precentral gyrus is part of the frontal lobe, and it's responsible for voluntary motor function. That means that the nerve signals headed toward the skeletal muscles associated with skeletal movement originate in the precentral gyrus. The frontal lobes also contribute to speech creation by contracting the muscles that help us form words, concentration, forethought and planning, and decision-making. These are basically the attributes that shape our personality. Along with those emotional things we talked about with the amygdala, this is it. The postcentral gyrus is part of the parietal lobe, and it is the destination of nerve signals from our somatic sensations. So think about your somatic sensations, meaning when you touch something, you feel it. You feel it whether it's rough or smooth or hot or cold. So temperature changes, touch sensations, things like that. These are our somatic sensations. Nerve signals generated by those sensations, their destination is the postcentral gyrus of the parietal lobe. That's where we perceive the sensation and its details. The parietal lobes also contribute to our awareness of the position of our bodies by receiving nerve signals from sensory receptors called proprioceptors. Proprioceptors are in our muscles and joints, so they can tell us how contracted our muscles are, what position our joints are in, whether we're upright or, or lying down. These are proprioceptors, and that proprioception is going to have a big role in our parietal lobe, and that way we can tell our body's position in space. The temporal lobes receive sensory signals for hearing and smell, right? Those are our special senses, hearing, smell, vision, balance and equilibrium, and taste. These are our special senses, and they have different destinations than the parietal lobe. So for hearing and smell, it's the temporal lobes. 
So they also contribute to converting our sensory experiences into long-term memories. They also play a role in emotion and how we comprehend language. The occipital lobes are responsible for receiving and comprehending visual stimuli. The insula is tough because it's, it's so deep inside the cerebrum that it's tough to access. So its functions are not completely understood, but it's believed to contribute to our perception of taste, pain, and visceral sensations, like how you feel things in your internal organs. Uh, it may also play a role in our levels of consciousness and our responses to emotional situations. Now remember that different parts of the brain have to communicate with each other to collaborate on all the brain's functions, right? The white matter of the cerebrum is comprised of bands of nerve fibers called tracts that allow this communication within the brain so that each lobe can communicate with each other, each section of each lobe can communicate with each other so that we can have this collaborative effort that is our central nervous system. Depending on the direction that these tracts run, these tracts of myelinated axons, they have a different name. Fibers that run left to right and right to left so that the different hemispheres can communicate with each other, they're called commissural tracts. And the largest band of commissural tracts is called the corpus callosum, which means tough body. That corpus callosum is the roof of the lateral ventricles. And it runs pretty far left and right and pretty far caudal and rostral. The rostral part of it has a bend in it called the genu. Genu means bend. Like you genuflect is to go down on one knee, to bend your knee. Um, That's called the genu of the corpus callosum. And then the caudal part is kind of a flat area called the splenium. And then the middle of it's called the body. We have a couple of other commissures, the anterior and posterior commissure, which are smaller bands of commissural fibers. The bands that run rostral and caudal, and caudal and rostral, are called association tracts. The association tracts allow different gyri and even different lobes to communicate with each other so different parts of the brain can collaborate on the specific tasks. For example, one portion of the brain perceives the image of a tennis ball, Another is responsible for knowing what it's called, while another allows you to imagine what it feels like. Finally, projection tracts have nerve fibers that run vertically, so superior and inferior brain and spinal cord regions can communicate with each other, whether it's spinal cord to brain or brain to spinal cord. This is how nerve signals generated by sensory receptors in your skin can eventually make their way to the postcentral gyrus, and how motor nerve signals originating in the precentral gyrus can make its way to your skeletal muscles. All right, so I think that's enough for this episode on the cerebrum. Uh, that's a lot. The cerebrum's a pretty big part of your of your brain, so we'll move into the brainstem and diencephalon in, a, in another episode. Thank you once again to Dr. B. Heaney Stemple, my esteemed colleague and super professor at Bucks County Community College, for joining me on today's episode and sharing her expertise on how post-traumatic stress disorder affects teaching and learning. And of course, thank you to the listeners for your support and patience. If you wouldn't mind, please remember to rate and review the podcast. And if you like it, tell your friends, your family, your classmates, and your professors. I hope you look forward to the next episode as much as I do. 
and that this podcast is helping you achieve that B or better in A&P. Good luck, and I'll see you next time. Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit is a production of Minus 55 Media. Please take the time to rate the podcast, and don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Student Help for AP. That's Student Help, the number four, AP. There's a whole lot of tutor videos on there that I think you're going to find helpful. Special thanks to my family, Bucks County Community College, and McGraw-Hill Education, where you can find Anatomy and Physiology Digital Suite, my low-cost, tutor video-based digital learning solution for anatomy and physiology, already being used at several colleges and universities. The music you've been hearing comes with my paid accounts with Camtasia and ProductionCrate.com assets.